Hi, you're listening to the Zoe Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Zoe Fellowship exists to have fellowship with God and with one another and to extend that fellowship to others through the work of Jesus Christ. This week's sermon is from Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 8 through chapter 11, verse 6, and is preached by Pastor Paul Hong. Due to the ongoing pandemic, Zoe Fellowship Sundays have moved online until further notice. Search for Zoe Fellowship in the YouTube search box and subscribe to our channel for updates and join us for new messages every Sunday at 1 p.m. If you guys have your Bibles, please turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 10, uh, verse 8. We're going to finish uh, the rest of chapter 10 today, and we're going to go a little bit into chapter 11, chapter 11, verse 6. So chapter 10, verse 8, and we're reading through chapter 11, verse 6. Would you follow along with me? He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be. And who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when the king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Chapter 11, verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. This is the word of the Lord. The day was April 25th, 2018. My uh, favorite basketball team, <laughs> the Oklahoma City Thunder, were down three games to one game, meaning uh, we only the, the Thunder only won one game, and we were in a playoff series against the Utah Jazz, and they had won three games. You need four games to win in order to move on to the next round in the playoffs. And so my wife and I, knowing that if Utah won this one more game in Oklahoma City, uh, they would win the series and move on to the second round. So we decided to buy tickets and drive up to Oklahoma City to watch what was possibly the last Thunder game of the season. And about at halftime, we considered leaving early uh, to avoid traffic and get home before 10 p.m. OKC was down 15 points. They were losing to the Jazz. 56 to 41, they were playing horribly. Uh, we didn't know if we wanted to, we could take any more of it, right? We talked about it. Um, 
Uh, but we, we decided to stay a little longer. We drove all the way down there. Technically, we'd only been in Oklahoma City for like an hour. Let's, let's stay a little longer, right? But then in less than five minutes, the Utah Jazz extended their lead to 25 points. The score was now 71 to 46. OKC called a timeout after the Jazz hit a three-pointer. And that's when I started seeing fans start leaving the arena. Like people were like, oh, my God, 25 points. This game's over. This game's over, right? And so I ended up. Yet again, we considered leaving. We looked at each other. Uh, we looked at each other. We, if we leave now, maybe we can get home by 10.30. Uh, not too late. Maybe avoid some traffic back to Dallas. Yeah, maybe we could do that. Uh, then I remember telling my wife, uh, you know what, let's, let's stick around. Let's stick around for a few more minutes. Who knows what will happen, right? Let's just see what happens. And from there, about 8 minutes, 41 seconds left, uh, OKC star player at the time, Russell Westbrook, would hit back-to-back -back threes. Paul George would go in for a layup, which is two points, could foul on it, and hit the end one, the, the foul after that, right? And so and just like that, the 25-point lead turned to like a 16-point lead, right? And then Russell continued to lead the comeback, and by the end of the third quarter, the game was tied, 78-78. to 78. And so the faithful fans who stayed, despite being down 25 points, uh, only about eight, with only about eight and a half minutes ago, were uh, going wild. We were going crazy. Like we were cheering, we were screaming. It was amazing. It was so much fun. And, and Russell Westbrook would end the night with 45 points, 15 rebounds, seven assists. Paul George would score 34 points. And the Thunder won the game. We walked off the court with a win. And my wife and I were so excited. We basically lost our voices from screaming and cheering. It was probably one of the best, if not the greatest basketball game I had ever seen live in person. Uh, it was an unforgettable experience. We'll never regret staying longer, driving through traffic, getting home around midnight to see the Thunder pull off that win. It was incredible, right? But why do I tell you this? Why do I tell you that story? Because the preacher in Ecclesiastes is trying to tell us through today's passage that since we don't know what's going to happen, we should live our life knowing that God is working, right? The reality is that we just don't know what's going to happen in life. And the preacher is telling us this. In our study through Ecclesiastes, the preacher has told us many times that no matter how far and wide and deep we search, we are at a limit in seeking out everything, right? Whether uh, it's because we can't go far enough, we can't go deep enough, we can't go wide enough, either, no matter what, we cannot know everything that God has been doing on the earth. And and the ultimate cap on all of that, of course, is the day of death. We don't know when we're going to die, right? So we could go on a search for it to know everything and in the end discover that uh, we're just going to die, <laughs> right? This is exactly what the preacher did, right? And so simply put, there's just no way of knowing everything, right? And we can't predict the future. We don't know what will happen. So how do we live our life? And when we look at Ecclesiastes, it's easy to think that the preacher is what people call a nihilist. A nihilist, nihilism, is an ideology that questions the meaningfulness of human nature and life. Right? Nihilism rejects moral and religious principles um, because it thinks, in the end, it doesn't matter. Like they're just kind of questioning the existence of everything. And you can you can kind of get that sense sometimes in Ecclesiastes. Like when he says things like vanity of vanities, everything is vanity, everything is meaningless, what's the point, nothing lasts forever, we can't be satisfied by anything, why go after anything at all? Some of those things that he says makes us think, oh, does he think that life doesn't matter? But the reality is the preacher is not a nihilist. So nihilists would kind of come to maybe the first 
uh, divide in the road in this kind of thinking where they would both kind of agree, the preacher and the nihilist would agree that, oh, vanity, nothing lasts forever, right? Nothing, uh, and sometimes that pulls away some meaning. And the nihilist would say, you know what? Since nothing matters, just live however you want. Who cares? Nothing matters anyway, right? But the preacher doesn't do that because the preacher understands, oh, God exists. And that changes everything. We have to fear God. We have to obey him. And then, then that means life, then, is a, is a gift from God. We've been given life. Yes, it's true that nothing lasts forever. Nothing is permanent. right? With no lasting legacy can be left behind. We'll be forgotten when we die. But God exists, and we have to fear him and obey him, that we ought to live and enjoy life. And this path that the preacher has been carving out through Ecclesiastes is what we call biblical wisdom. And what biblical wisdom is, as we've been talking about in the past few months now, is understanding that God created the whole world and navigating that world and this life and trying to make a good life for ourselves. That is what wisdom is. But biblical wisdom is distinct because you could you could you can be an atheist or you could be just somebody who doesn't believe in God. You can kind of come to the same conclusion. Maybe you take God out, but you can understand, ah, there's some patterns in the world, and so a wise person knows how to do this and this and this, and they should live this way, right? But biblical wisdom will say, no, God created everything. He has a design for everything. And to enjoy a good life, we ought to live this way. And ultimately, living this way will lead to God himself, the creator of wisdom himself, the all-wise God. Biblical wisdom always leads to God in the end. And so this is the difference, right, between what the preacher is talking about and what the nihilist is talking about. And so the, so the preacher says, since you don't know what's going to happen, you ought to live life knowing that God is working, right? You Christians, we believe in God, and we believe that he's faithful and that he's working, and so that gives us some perspective on how to live life, when we, especially in the light of the reality that we don't know what will happen in the end. Who knows? You never know, right? And so this is what the preacher will say. He's going to give us kind of two things uh, here, divided into two different parts, right? The first part, which is the first two points, he's basically going to give us more of a pessimistic view about not knowing everything, or not knowing what's coming, that, that we just don't know, right? But then in the second part, he's going to give us some foundation about what, how we can live then, right, in light of not knowing, right? So the first thing he says in verses 8 through 11, he's basically saying this, you never know if you'll ever find success. You never know if you ever find success. Look at verse 8. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. I'm sure all of us have experienced something like this before. Uh, maybe growing up in school, uh, we uh, studied super hard for an exam, um, and then we took the test, and it was like not everything you studied maybe wasn't on it, or uh, or maybe you did you thought you did well, and you got back the grade, and it wasn't the grade that you wanted. Or maybe you've been at a, on a project at work with a group of uh, coworkers, and you just felt like the other your friend your coworkers didn't pull their weight, right? You put in all this effort and work, and you put yourself into your, this project, and in the end, the project was just like, eh, right? Uh, I know for me, when I first started coming here, back here again, I guess well, when the English ministry started here, uh, I wanted to just like find ways to get closer to the guys, and they had just started a soccer team, and so I was like, okay. I don't like soccer, I don't enjoy soccer, but you know what, it gives me some time to spend time with some of the guys, get to know them a little better, and so 
I, I tried to join the team. I bought soccer cleats. I, I got new shin guards and soccer socks. And um, I bought the, like, you know, the, the, the uniform they were wearing, uh, the jersey. Um, and then, you know, I went out to practices, like, almost every week. And we were, like, kicking the ball around, all that stuff. And I was like, okay. And then uh, and I was getting to know the guys. It was fun. And then we played a scrimmage. And, like, within the first few minutes, somebody juked me out. And I ended up rolling my ankle, like, really bad. Uh, and so that was that. I couldn't play soccer anymore. And I felt like such a waste because I don't even like soccer, but I injured myself playing soccer. Yeah, it felt like such a waste, right? It was like, oh, it's so frustrating. But the reality is this, and this is what exactly, that kind of thing is exactly what he's talking about in these verses. You dig a pit, but you fall into it. You try to charm a snake, but it, it ends up biting you. You quarry stones, and it ends up hurting you. The reality is that the preacher is describing here is this idea that everything you feel like you've mastered will end up mastering you in some way. You'll be overcome in some way by the things that you work for. And this is obviously a result of Genesis 3, the fall, the curse of the fall. Adam and Eve sin, and God curses the ground because of Adam. He says this, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So Adam, he's this farmer, he's a gardener, and he's, the ground is cursed because of him. And so now when he's tilling the ground, when he's sowing seeds, he has no idea if what he put, the effort he puts in will ever be rewarded. That if you'll ever have success, sometimes it'll bring forth thorns and thistles, and guess what? It's going to take an immense amount of effort. You're going to sweat, and you're just going to eat what is just comes out there, right? The bread that you eat with the sweat on your face. Um, and then guess what? You're going to die and be buried in the same ground that you were gardening in. For, for you are dust, and to dust you shall turn. You never know if you'll ever find success, right? That's what he says. And then the second part of this kind of pessimistic side that um, the preacher kind of gets us and gets to is this. You never know, so don't pretend to know, right? He's sort of this more applicational kind of thing. You never know, so why do you even pretend to know? Look at verse 12. He says, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what he's to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. I lived in uh, Louisville, Kentucky for one year. I went to seminary there for one year, and then I ended up transferring back. Um, while I was there, I had to take a job, part-time job, and so I, I worked at Best Buy, actually. Uh, and... There was this one time where, I, and I was one of the warehouse guys where I had to like help restock items and then you know move out fridges and ovens and stuff for, for people who came in and bought them and stuff. But there was one time I was like restocking, I want to say like headphones or something like that, right? I was restocking, um, and I, I felt like it was sort of late, it was dark because it was cold and things like that. And um, somebody taps my shoulder and asks me what time the store closed. And I look up, and it's Albert Moeller, Dr. Albert Moeller Jr., who is the president of the seminary that I was attending, Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's, that's Dr. Moeller, right? And he's the president of it. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And he just asked me, he said, hey, do you know what time uh, this closes? And, and, I, and I just, for the life, I could not remember. And I was like, ah. And I just, like, I could have said, oh, I'm not sure. And I could have turned to somebody and asked or something, right? 
But instead, I tried to ask, answer, and I was like, I thought it'd be reasonable. Oh, maybe I think we, I think we close at seven, sir. You know, like I just kind of threw a number out there because I thought that was reasonable or reasonable time for Best Buy to close. Then Alvin Waller, he looks at his watch, he looks at me, and he says, "It's eight forty-five." It's one of the worst, most embarrassing moments of my life. I, I, I just, I like immediately wanted to withdraw from Southern Seminary because I was just so embarrassed. But I tell you that because. This is kind of exactly what uh, verses 12 through 15 is talking about. This fool who talks when he doesn't know anything. Like, I was that fool. I didn't know what time. I could have just said no. It would have been more wise to say, I'm not sure. Let me go ask somebody. Go get help. Instead, I tried to, like, be reasonable because I was trying to look smart in front of Dr. Alvin Mola Jr. And instead, I looked like an idiot, right? But this is what fools do. They multiply words. They don't know, but they keep talking. You know these people. Maybe you've been that person, Right? There are just times you're in conversation. You don't know what's going on, but you just try to contribute. But you don't really know. Don't be that guy. Don't pretend to know. And that's the reality he says about life, too. It's like, how we don't know. How could we know? Who, who is an expert at life, really? Sure, there are people with more experience, more wisdom, and that's valuable, right? But nobody is a true expert at life. Nobody got it perfect, right, that we know of under the sun. Instead, the way we should talk is this. In James chapter 4, verse 13, uh, the Apostle James says, Come now you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That's like theme of Ecclesiastes, right? You are a mist, you're there for a little time and then you vanish. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. See, the reason why fools talk so much, their words multiply, is because they're arrogant. They're prideful. They think they can get away with it. But the Lord knows all. And the wise person will say, instead of trying to plan everything without God in mind, without God's, thinking about God's will for us, we ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll live and do this and that. So, fools, right, they, they pretend to know anything, they pretend to be experts, but what the preacher is saying, you never know, so don't pretend to be an expert, don't pretend to be an expert at life. But then, the, uh, the preacher kind of transitioning, he's trying to now show us uh, how we can live life in life of not knowing everything. And he says this, starting verse 16, you never know, so take care of the things that you do know. Take care of the things about, so take care of the of what you do know. Sorry. You never know, so take care of what you do know. Look at verse 16. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom. Curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature to tell of the matter. I have a college friend who recently reached out to me. I had posted some Instagram story about uh, Pascal, and she reached out to me uh, because she was pregnant. Uh, she's, I think, I forgot how close, I think she might be in the third trimester, I think. Um, but she, all she asked was a simple question. She just said, Paul, is it hard? Right? Is it hard being a parent? Basically, is what she was asking. I thought a lot about how I should answer her, and I decided to go and reach out, and I gave her kind of just some unwarranted advice. And I told her this. I said, yeah, yes, it's, it's hard. It's really hard. 
And for me and Anna, it's hard because there was a lot of sacrifices we had to make. We had to sacrifice time alone, sacrifice our time with each other, uh, we had to sacrifice things at work, with ministry, with friendships, relationships, family, all that. There was a lot of sacrifices that we had to make, and it was really, really difficult to do something, some of those sacrifices. And then I told her, yeah, it's hard, but you know what? A healthy marriage helps. It helps. Be in each other's corners, have each other's backs, love each other well. That's really important in raising a kid. But then I told her this, that even though it's hard, there's a lot of sacrifices, and that the, uh, like a healthy marriage is vital, there's so much joy. There's so much joy in raising uh, a baby. Uh, the cliche, I think, is true about how uh, the little things make it worth it. It's the little things that make it worth it. Because when I think about, look, when I look back, my wife and I almost every night we would lie in bed together and we would just look at pictures of Pascal. You know, we just put him down. We'll look at pictures. We'll just scroll through the pictures we've taken. And, you know, we'll see videos of Pascal rolling over for the first time, smiling. We caught him smiling, you know, like on camera for the first time, laughing for the first time, laughing with teeth. Right? For the first time, he's making weird faces when he started eating solids, when he's standing, sitting, all these like little things that, honestly, who cares about those things? When you see another kid do that, like you're like, whatever, but when it's your own kid, it's like these little things go a long way. And all these, every single one of these little tiny, what feel like meaningless milestones, have been so full of joy, and we've had zero regrets about any of the sacrifices we've had to make in order to raise Pascal. And the reality of that is, what I'm t- why I'm telling you that is this, is that, you know what? We don't know uh, how Pascal's going to turn out to be like. Like, we pray for Pascal every night that he'll be saved, because we don't know. Like, I don't know if God in his grace and mercy will save Pascal. Right? I don't know if Pascal will become a good person or not. Like, I remember, uh, I asked my friends with kids a lot, like, would you rather your kid be a bully or be bullied? Like, <laughs> if you only, have, if they could only become one or the, one or the other. Right? That's like a weird question. Like, I think I'd rather, I, I mean, I don't know. Like, it's, it's hard, but it is one of those things, like, they, they could, one of those things could happen. Like, he could just be bullied his entire life, or he could be a bully, and that'd be, like, he could be a bad person. Like, I don't know what Pascal would be like. But there are some things I do, I do have in control. Like, I should be praying for my son every night, like we do. We read the Bible together, we feed him. We have responsibilities as parents that we know we have to do, and you do too. You have responsibilities. There are a lot of things you don't know. You don't know if you're going to get that job. You don't know if you're going to get into that school. But you do know that you have to do well in school. And you do know you have to do good at your job. Right? Those are responsibilities you have. And so you ought to do them. And and the reason why this is telling us this is because uh, the preacher, he's telling that he's showing a a king who is a child. Woe to you, O land. A king who is a child and when your princess feast in the morning. He's saying, like, this this incompetent, foolish leadership who just kind of lives in the grandiose of their life, that'll ultimately affect the land, their their kingdom, and affect them negatively. The people are going to suffer. But verse 17, blessed are you, happy are you, O land, when your king is son of nobility and your princess feast at the proper time, for strength, not for drunkenness. Right? And it shows that they work hard. You have a king and, uh, and princes who feast the proper time, they're not just partying all night, getting drunk. They're working, and they have to eat to, to sustain more work, right? Through sloth, the roof sinks in. They're not lazy. And verse 19 is confusing. Bread is made for laughter. Wine glad is empty. Money enters everything. But really, this is just the what verse 19 is, is the philosophy of life of this, this child king, right? This lazy, incompetent king. 
The bread is just like, oh, it's just so you can be full and happy. Wine, glad it's life. You can just party all the time. Money, like if you have a problem, just throw money at it. It'll solve itself. That's the, that's the philosophy of a child king, a man child. And this is not how life is meant to be. You have to work hard. You have responsibilities. You have to do them. It affects the people around you. And then finally, he says, the preacher says, you never know, so go for it. You never know, so whatever you're doing, go for it. Okay, look at chapter 11, verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or eight. Uh, give a portion to seven or even to eight. For you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Basically, what he's saying is just do it. Like, whatever you're doing, a lot of times we'll get too cautious about something. And we should just do it. Because why? Because we never know what will happen. It's almost kind of like, it's a nice bookend to the first point, right? You never, you don't know if you'll ever find success. But maybe you will. Right? You never know. So go for it. Why, why wouldn't you? Go for it. And look what he says. He, verse 4, if he who observes the wind will not sow, he, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Some of you, I'm sure, try to find the perfect time, perfect environment, perfect circumstances in order for you to do something. And what he says is the people who do that, you're never going to get anything done. Don't wait for the perfect moment. Just go for it. Now, this doesn't mean to just do whatever you want, everything that you believe in yourself, just go for it. That's not what it's necessarily saying. Of course, you have to be wise. And the rest of Ecclesiastes and the whole Bible points to that reality. But you know at the end of it, like, ah, God is calling me to this. God, in his wisdom, and I'm trusting God in this, and I'm stepping forward into that. If you know that God is going to bless you in this, then why don't you just go for it? What's stopping you? Go for it. In the morning, sow your seed. And that evening, withhold not your hand. And the reality is this. It's because the reason why we should go for it is because we don't know what will happen. We don't know the, the work that God is doing. Right? Verse 5. You do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the same way that you don't know how bones appear in a baby. Right? Like, it's the, it's the same thing. One of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite uh, cartoons when I was a kid was The Magic School of Us. If you guys remember that show, I was this red-haired witch lady... <laughs> She was pretty much a witch, right? And she had this, like, like sanctioned school bus. Um, and uh, basically, she would take her class, and they'd go on field trips every day, which was, like, the dream, obviously, of the kids, right? But one of the things that, one of her mottos, right, one of her slogans that she had was this, take chances, make mistakes, get messy. Take chances, make mistakes, and get messy. And I think... This applies to Christians so much, even more so. A secular person can do this just so that they can enjoy the, enjoy the spice of life or something, right? But for Christians, we can do that because we have God. We have a relationship with God. Right? And let me, and one thing that I think really applies in this area, if I could point this out for a lot of you, is this. 
Um, don't be afraid to invest in relationships. Like, I think we're not afraid of taking maybe a promotion somewhere or trying out for another job because maybe we're just, we've gotten everything out of this job, so we don't mind moving into a new season of life, a new job. We're trying something else, starting school again, uh, going into a relationship, right? Like, those things, that, like, for whatever reason, when we're trying to invest in a friendship, like, we're kind of like, pull back a bit, for whatever reason. Because there's this idea now, I think, that um, uh, you should only invest in people that are going to reciprocate. And while I totally understand the sentiment of that, right, and I, I practice that myself a little bit, I'm not sure that that's the way to go every time. And the reason why I say this is because of exactly the reasons that the preacher is giving us here. When we invest ourselves in other people and put stuff in other people, our vulnerabilities, our all those things, and maybe we've been burned in the past, or maybe we've burned someone and we don't want to do that again, right? It still doesn't mean we shouldn't try to do that because this is how God has created us to be. We're meant to be in community, in real community with each other. And and the, the preacher is saying, why wouldn't you go for it? You don't know if you'll find success or not. You may find the best friendship of your life, or you may get burnt. That's possible as well. And that's a reality of a fallen world that we live in. But, but the reality is this. But we have a God who is working in the background of everything. Right? And in, in one sense, we can, never, we can never fail in that. And so in that sense, don't be afraid to invest in relationships. Right? Don't be afraid to invest time and money and resources and emotions into a relationship, whether you get burnt or not. And it's tough. This is what the church is supposed to do. And let me go ahead and um, challenge you guys to reach out to another church member who you don't know that well and buy them lunch or have a cup of coffee. Just talk for an hour. Just catch up. Like, I know you guys talk to each other who you guys are already friends with. But how many of you have reached out to another person that you don't talk to that much, right? that you don't see that often, that you didn't hang out with when we were still gathering together? Go ahead and why don't you reach out and buy them lunch or coffee or finally have a break and do that. Or mind up to do that. And so please, don't be afraid to invest in relationships. And the reason why we can never fail is this, and I'll end with this. Tim Keller put it this way, and I, and I love what he said. And I don't think this is exactly the, uh, the application he was trying to get to, but I think it can relate here. He says that the only person that can wake up the king in the middle of the night for a glass of water is the king's children, or the king's son. That's the reality, right? And, and we are adopted sons and daughters of God through Jesus, right? Through Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, through the gospel and our faith in Jesus to take our sin upon himself, be crucified on the cross, and then rise again from the dead on the third day, right? And our trust in that we too uh, are uh, baptized into his death and wrote, uh, risen again, right? Raised again, just like Jesus was. In the same way, because of that, our faith in that we have been born again, a living hope. And we've been adopted through faith, right? As sons and daughters through Jesus. And because of that, we can we are in a relationship with God. Wisdom has led us that way. And through that, it shows that God is going as our Father is going to continue to pour grace in our failure, right? And He's also going to pour grace in any success we might find. Either way, you'll find grace in the pit that you dug yourself into, and you're going to find grace in the daily rhythms of life. You're going to find grace when you speak and multiply words like a fool. You're going to find grace, why? Because of Jesus. You are a son, daughter of the king. You can ask him for a glass of water. 
for that grace. So don't be afraid, right? You never know. So go for it. You never know. Go for it. God is always working in your failures, in your success, when you're hurt, when you've been burnt by people, when you've been burnt by work and you're, uh, you're just tired and exhausted from the daily rhythms of life, the repetitiveness of life, there's still grace in that somewhere. And wisdom will help you find it. And wisdom will help you find it in Jesus.